Okay, so I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to start off with a, a story that I heard. That's uh, This is the type of story I think that once a year you go, how is it possible I didn't hear it sooner? You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's an amazing story. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning with someone who's, whose brother actually, his twin brother is actually in the Olympics. He's a, he's a Shomer Shabbos guy. He, he's, you know, just, uh, he, and he's the first Orthodox Jew in the Olympics. And he is in South Korea right now and is in the, the I think I'm pronouncing this right, the skeleton um, thing, which is, if you know about that, you, you're lying on your stomach on this, like, basically this metal skateboard. I mean, it's a little, it's not a skateboard. It's more accurate than that. And you're zipping around a bobsled track at like 60, 70, I don't know, 80 miles an hour, just face first. So it's, it, is, it is like really, it's intense. It's super intense. Anyway, he, he, made, he made the Olympics. So he's, he's uh, on, on, you know, he grew up here in America, but he's, he's uh, representing Israel in, in this event. So this is an amazing thing. So, so, um, so a friend was telling me they saw on Allison Joseph's blog, Jew in the City, uh, the following story, uh, which is that he might be the first Orthodox Jew in the Olympics, but he's not the first Orthodox Jew to qualify for the Olympics. So what's that story? Okay, so that story goes like this. So there's, there's a guy, I don't know his name, unfortunately, but he's, he's, he was really into cycling, right? Bi- bicycling. And he's cycling here in Los Angeles. And a car deliberately runs him off the road. And then yells at the guy, you know, next time, Jew, I'm going to get you. Like, for real. And this guy is like, you know, obviously rattled. And he decides, you know, that's it, I'm moving to Israel. So he moves to Israel, and he continues, you know, his, his, his love of cycling, of, of bicycling. Um, he needs a job, finds a job at a, uh, at a teaching at a, at, a, at a religious school. He himself was not religious. But he was in this environment, and, you know, it's a very warm environment. He, 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 he liked it. He responded to it. You know, they're, they're teaching Torah, so he started learning some Torah, and he's like, you know, I love this. So he starts keeping Shabbos. And he becomes religious himself. Now, meanwhile, he's, he's continuing to cycle. He's really super good at it. And he makes the Israeli Olympic team. And then he finds out, the coach tells him, who, who I guess was um, not, you know, kind of supportive of, of these type of things, was, you know, kind of a little anti-religious, tells him that, listen, we're not taking you to the Olympics. And he's like, you know, what, what do you mean? What's going on? And he says, listen, the, the cycling event is on Shabbos, and we can't accommodate you for that, and it's just, it just it's not going to work. So he says, well, you know, maybe we can switch the date or something like that. And, you know, and they're like, just, no, it's, a, it's, not, it's not happening. We're, we're, you're not going. So he's like, all right, well then, I'm not going. So, but here's the amazing thing. How did the rest of the cycling team, which, which didn't observe the Sabbath, how did, they, how did they respond to this? They said to the coach, if he's not going, we're not going. Wow. So, so, and now here's the end of the story. So none of them went to the 1972 oh, wow. Summer Olympics in Munich. Okay, so for, just in case anyone doesn't know, the Israeli team was massacred at those Summer Olympics. They were, they were killed. 
They were all murdered. The wrestling team. Yeah, the wrestling team. The wrestling team. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, an amazing story. An amazing story. An amazing story. Um, okay, so so there, there's a, there's a lot I want to discuss today. Um, let me just say something just on the on the on the parsha first because. We're getting into a different. We're getting into a, a whole new section of the Torah, and I just want to say some just general headliner ideas, just to kind of understand and have a context for what we're talking about when we're talking about the the Mishkan. What what, what is the Mishkan basically? So everybody knows the Mishkan in English. I guess you would translate it as the Tabernacle. I don't know if that's if anyone knows more what a tabernacle is than, than a mishkan, I, mean, I don't know that the, the English helps you at all in that. But basically, it was this. It was this. Uh, it was this. It was this. You know, synagogue for one of a better word that that, that they uh, that they put up and they took down and it traveled with them. But it, you know, very very ancient. By the way, and it was the prototype for the holy temple in Jerusalem for the Beis Hamikdash in in Jerusalem. Um, What's, what's, what's interesting is that the Mishkan was actually never destroyed. So the Mishkan is somewhere. It's hidden somewhere. But it, there's no record that it was ever destroyed, unlike the first and second temples, which were, of course, you know, famously destroyed by the Babylonians and the Romans. Okay? But this was the prototype. And what's, what's, what's interesting, and what's sort of like confounding to a lot of people who have been sort of following along in the Torah up until now, is that the narrative in the Torah has actually been beyond epic. The, the Jews have been enslaved, and now all of a sudden Moshe is taking them out with plagues and wonders, and the sea is splitting, and the Torah is being given at Mount, Sinai, at Mount Sinai and everything like this. And then all of a sudden you have, it, the Torah becomes architectural digest, right? All of a sudden it becomes exceedingly exact you know it's going to you have to make this piece of furniture measuring this exact amount and this number of hooks made out of this material and it goes on like that for parshas and parshas and then it goes into Sefer Vayikra which is you know equally exact in terms of how we're going to access this 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 Mishkan which was really which was really a portal a portal between heaven and earth it was connecting heaven and earth in fact one of the interesting things is, is that when Yosef is reunited with his brothers and he's with Binyamin, right, who they share the same mother, you know, Rachel, they cry on each other's necks. And if you look at the Rashi there, it says that what they were doing was they, they knew through Ruch HaKodesh, through prophecy basically, that the future temples were going to be destroyed and they were already mourning that together. It's, that's endlessly fascinating, but without going too deeply into that, let's just, just talk about the tip of the iceberg there. Interesting that they were mourning while they were crying on each other's necks. Because what did we just say? We just said that this Mishkan was, was something, you know, beyond. It was, it was not a normal building. It was, it was a connection between heaven and earth. What is your neck? What is your neck? Well, your head is where your brain is, and the brain is the seat of the soul, so in terms of your body, your head is heaven. And what is your body? Your body has, you know, its physical needs and, and things like that. It's very much part of this world. That's the earth. And so your neck is actually that portal between heaven and earth. So where were they crying while they were mourning the destruction of the base of Migdash? On each other's necks. So that, that in itself is, is, is interesting. 
But, but let's get to this narrative shift because it's going from, again, like one of the most epic accounts in, in all of human history, maybe the most epic account, to all of a sudden something exceedingly exact. And it, it seems like the narrative just sort of took a sharp left turn and went off a cliff, right? So now we need the Ramban. So the Ramban is saying, we always have to keep this in mind, that no, 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 the story didn't change. We didn't, we, didn't, we didn't switch gears here at all. Basically, here's the progression. Jews were slaves. They understand just basically the whole blueprint of creation. That's the Torah. They're free now. And now, our job is to turn the entire world into a dwelling place for God. Because that's, that's what the Mishkan was. The Mishkan was this sort of like focal point for the Shekhinah. For like this, basically, most more revealed aspect of God's essence, right? It's a spiritual concept, right? For that, more revelation of oneness, right? That's what we call the Shekhinah. It's a, just a, just this extra clarity in the world, extra spiritual clarity and harmony in the world. That's that's how we'll define it. And 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 when we have the base of Mikdash, when we have the Holy Temple, when we had the, the Mishkan itself, there was a way to sort of anchor that, that extra level of God's presence, that extra anchor of clarity about what this world is, what it's for, who we are, what we're supposed to be doing. All of that was, was very visible and revealed in front of us. Okay, that's, that, that's the importance. That's why we pray for the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash all the time. That's why when we talk about the third holy temple, building that, it's synonymous with the arrival of Mashiach, which is the next era of, of human history that we're, that we're waiting for. I, I've heard it referred to as the Zman Atikun, the time of fixing, where, where basically that clarity in the world will be restored again. So, so that's, that's, very, that's very clear. Hopefully, hopefully. So, so, so we're, we're, we're transforming the entire world now. And, and we're still in the middle of that story. Now, now, let me give you headline number two, also from the Ramban. What, basically, what was the Mishkan? And, and this is, I, I think that this is a very important idea. It's really worth thinking about. And, and it, it might sound simple and go in one year and out the other, but I would ask you to actually really spend some time thinking about this. If you think about what is the turning point of human history, what's the whole turning point? If you have to pick one event that's the turning point. What would that be? So I would suggest to you it was the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And remember, remember, that was witnessed by approximately two and a half million people were there. An incredible claim for any religion to make. If you think about other religions, they all say, well, there was a single prophet, and that single prophet got the word, and then he tells everyone, trust me. Judaism says something radically, exponentially, wildly different. We say there were two and a half million witnesses at that event. It's so easy to disprove. That's why, that's why it's such a crazy premise for a religion to promote. But we're saying that your father's 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 mother's father's father's mother's 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 father was actually right there. And that, that, that's what it is. And that at any point along that line, it would have just been like, what are you talking about? My grandfather's alive today. He wasn't there. Or his father, he didn't hear it from his. In other words, 
it's, it's very, this is a very hard hoax to pull off because of the outrageousness of the claim. Okay? And what's equally fascinating, or in some ways more fascinating to me, is if you were to ask me when I was, I don't know, 14 years old or whatever it is, if I, you know, before I studied any of these things, you know, seriously, if you were to ask me, well, does Christianity believe in the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai that God gave the Torah to two and a half million Jews? I would say no, because they've got their own agenda, right? They've got their own vision of the world and everything like that. 1,000% Christianity says this revelation took place. If you were to ask me, does Islam believe that this took place? I'd say no, Islam is its own religion. They've got their own narrative. They, 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 they're doing... No, it's not true. Islam, 10,000% says God gave the Torah to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. Okay, so that's, that's interesting. That's, that's interesting. Because it would seem to me that they, in order to promote their own authentic view, or what they would promote as their own authentic view, would want to undermine the premise of our authenticity. But no, that's not the case. Why? Because in their time, just from a very practical standpoint, from their time, it was known as something that that had happened. So they could get more mileage, you know, saying, like in the the classic improv, yes and, (laughs) and then they kind of factor in their story, right? Okay, now, why am I spending time talking about Mount Sinai? I thought we were talking about the Mishkan. Okay, now we're back to the Ramban. So the Ramban says, and here's the headline, the Ramban says, what was the Mishkan? What was this tabernacle? What was this portal? What what are we talking about here? He said, it was an ongoing, an ongoing presentation of the Mount Sinai experience. That's what it was. And if you think about it, you know, in the Mishkan, you had the holy, the holy area, and then you had the Kodesh Kedoshim, the holy of holies. What was in the holy of holies? The tablets that we got at Mount Sinai. Right? The Luchos. That's what was there. So, so that's, that makes sense, that if that was like, if that, was, if that was the centerpiece of the Mishkan, that certainly was the centerpiece of Mount Sinai, right? And just like there were miracles at Mount Sinai, there were miracles in the Mishkan and in the first holy temple. So you were able to have this whole kind of awesome, you know, God experience there, Mount Sinai experience there. Okay, now I'm going to use this to answer another question, which, um, which uh, the Ramban, I'm going to use this to answer another question. So here's the question. You know, everybody knows when we're coming up to this Parsha that things went sort of like really like off the rails with the golden calf. Like we made this golden calf. Okay, so we've given lots and lots of talks on that and maybe in the upcoming weeks we'll give another one. But, but we knew, okay, we knew we did something wrong. <laughs> we, okay? okay, so here's my question. In the Holy of Holies, on top of the tablets, there were two sculptures of golden angels. What are those doing there? I mean, it seems like that would actually be worse than the golden calf. At least the golden calf was not in the Holy of Holies, for goodness sakes. Right? And then you had two of them. So, I, 
I feel strange using this adjective, but I'm going to use it anyway. The answer to me is actually delicious because, because it's so utterly simple. Here's the answer. Do you know why the two golden angels were good, even though they're on top of the Torah? They're on top of the Torah, the tablets, right? In the Holy of Holies, and the golden calf wasn't okay? Here's the answer. Because God told us to make those, and he didn't tell us to make that. It's very simple. Very, very, very simple explanation. So now, but now, let's get back to this Rambat, right? That the Mishkan was an ongoing recreation of the Mount Sinai experience, which traveled with us. And remember, remember why that's so essential. Because, because our sages teach that the call from Mount Sinai, the voice from Mount Sinai never stopped. Right? And, and listen to this. This is like a little bit heartbreaking. I heard this from Reb Shlomo in the name of Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. Do you know why you can't hear it? Do you know, like, because if we're saying that, if we're actually taking this seriously, and we're saying that the voice, you know, the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai never stopped, then why can't, why can't I hear it? So, so, so Reb Shlomo says in the name of Rebbe Nachman, because anger is the loudest sound in the world. And there's so much anger in the world, it's completely drowning out our ability to hear. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? It's, 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 it's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking, you know? So anyway, and by the way, again, just I want to refresh your memory just because it's so good. Remember what the Chidush Rim says. This is a kavana, a holy thing you can have in mind when you say Shema. When you say Shema Yisrael, remember, what does that mean? That means, hear Israel. Who's Israel? You're Israel, right? So hear Israel. So what's the question? What am I supposed to hear? So, so, so the Chidush Rim says, you're supposed to hear the call from Mount Sinai. You're supposed to hear these words, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God your God. Right? So you can kind of have that in mind when you say, when you say the Shema. Something special. Okay. So, so let's get back to the, the question of what these golden angels are doing in the Holy of Holies. Right? So remember, what did the Ramban say again? The Ramban says that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, is a recreation, an ongoing recreation of Mount Sinai. So with that in mind, I want to offer the following, ex- uh, following explanation. At Mount Sinai, our sages teach that there were, I believe it was, 600,000 myriads of angels that were present at the time of the giving of the Torah. So if you think about it, look at the golden ark. What, what, what is the ark? These are angels on top of what? The tablets, the luchos. In other words, that's actually a snapshot of the Mount Sinai experience. That's, that's what was going on right there. So with that in mind, all of a sudden, you go, okay, yeah, of course. What do you mean, why do we have angels? We need angels over there, you know what I mean? It's just like everything gets flipped upside down, you know? It's like all of a sudden it becomes very, very logical and even compelling, right? So, okay. So, and then I'll just throw in one more PS on that, which is that the Balatorum brings that the word truma, the, that's the name of the Parsha that the whole building of the Mishkan takes place in, Okay. So Truma, says the Baal Torah, if you rearrange the letters of Truma, it spells Torah Mem. Okay? So Mem is Gematria 40. 
And of course, the Torah was given, Moshe was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights getting the Torah. So again, the Parsha, right, fitting this in with the Ramban, that the, that the, that the Mishkan was an ongoing recreation of the Mount Sinai experience, it's in Parsha's Truma, which is Torah Mem, that the Torah was given over 40 days and nights at Mount Sinai. So even, even the name of the Parsha is testifying to the connection between the Mishkan and Mount Sinai. Okay? So, so good. So now, I want to, I want to go a little bit deeper. And I want to start talking about Purim. And I got kind of like a new take on Purim. <laughs> and I was really excited. I got very, very excited. So I'm going to share this with you. We're gonna have to kind of we're gonna have to kind of build to it, okay? But now we're talking about Purim. But first, we have to talk about Newton and Einstein, okay? So, so let's 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 do that. So I've been at at, at work. I've I've had the the privilege of working as with a, a consultant right now. Who's, he's really honestly, I'm not making this up. He's one of the top physicists in the in the world. And, and I've just finished, I think, six hours of lectures from him. And, and yeah, with lots of questions and answers and all sorts of things, it's, it's really been, it's been great. It's been really, really good. And one of the things that he keeps on referencing, and, and, and it's just, I see a real spiritual Torah connection to this type of, um, to this type of structure, which is why I'm sharing it with you. Um, he talks about the difference between Newtonian physics and Einsteinian physics. So that, those are fancy words, but don't get scared. The, 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 the idea is actually um, pretty straightforward. Um, Newtonian physics, so that's after Newton, you know, Sir Isaac Newton, by the way, who loved Jews, loved God, loved Torah, right? If you kind of look up, um, he, used to, he, he used to sketch the... Um, the Beis Amigdash, and and felt that the because there are a lot of numbers attached measurements to the different to the different structures within the within the Holy Temple, he felt that see look when you I don't know if you like architecture I like architecture so you know as you walk around you look at various buildings you know this one's pleasing to your eye that one's maybe less pleasing to your eye. You love the proportionality of the size of the door that they put to the size of the windows. Sometimes you look and you say, you know, that door, it's kind of a small door. <laughs> it doesn't really make the house look very nice. <laughs> what were they thinking with the size of those windows, right? So, in other words, choices like that actually influence the beauty, the, you know, of course, different tastes for different people, but... But what if there what if there were actually an objective standard of beauty for something like this or a harmony or structure what if there actually were an objective standard so sir isaac newton felt that the proportionality since these were god's own measurements for the for the building itself that those proportions actually had heavenly secrets about the entire universe how the universe was shaped and formed. Isn't that interesting? So, and he was, he was deep into it. And this is, you know, one of the greatest scientific minds far and away that's ever, ever, ever lived. 
He's the one who put the formula on gravity, for goodness sakes. Right? I mean, there were a lot of smart people for thousands of years who were never actually able to write down a formula for how gravity works. He was working on certain problems, and he realized that he had to invent an entire new system of mathematics to calculate the problems that he needed to solve. He created calculus in order to solve the problems that he needed solving, right? So, I mean, we're talking about a, a, a just a, a complete other level, right? But what I think, again, is interesting, he wasn't Jewish, loved God, loved Torah, right? So, in other words, don't, don't think just because there's so much um, uh, animosity in, 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 in society today in, in certain quarters between science and and, 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 and spirituality, right? That, that, that it has to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way at all. And, and not only that, but we say the one who created the world, created everything, including science. So how could, uh, science is just a description of what God is up to, right? So that's, that's all it is, right? Okay, so remember what Maimonides says, what the Rambam says. He says, if there's a difference, a, a, a disagreement between Torah and, and science, you either got the science wrong or you got the Torah wrong. <laughs> right? But, but inherently they have to agree because it's the same power behind both of them. Right? And, 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 and you, see, you know, like, like for instance, I think one of the real problems, and it's funny because this, this is coming from highly intellectual highly intellectual people, but I don't think it's highly an, a highly intellectual thought, even though it's coming from the mouths of highly intellectual people. They think that the opening of Breshis, of, of, of Genesis, in a few dozen verses can possibly contain, from their level of expectation, what all of science... <coughs> And all the textbooks of science and chemistry and biology and physics, how can you fit that all in a few verses? I mean, honestly, like, what is your, and all of biology and all of genealogy, and like, what, what, what do you think was trying to be conveyed in those opening verses? Certainly not an exhaustive scientific set of formulas. <laughs> The, the, the Torah is not a science book. Torah means teaching. It's approaching it from different angles. And, and of course, anyone who, who, who understands the Torah knows that those opening verses of the Torah are endlessly, endlessly deep and packed with endless secrets. But, but you have to use different techniques in order to unpack them. Anyway, that's just, a, just an aside. So what is, what is the Newtonian paradigm? versus the Einsteinian paradigm. So, so Newton is basically describing how a lot of these forces, how physics is basically working in, in our dimension, if you will, on Earth, with, 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 with what gravity is on Earth, say. Okay? So, so as, as this physicist we're working with uses as an example, if you throw a baseball, right? Newtonian physics works fantastically well if you want to anticipate where that baseball is going to land, right? So, if, so in terms of understanding this world, Newton is tops, okay? 
But as society has gotten more technologically advanced, we've been able to go into deep space, right? They used to call it outer space. Now, now they call it deep space, right? We've been able to go into deep space. We've been able to explore the cosmos. And what Einstein found was that a lot of the Newtonian laws, if you look at it on a macro scale, right, they, they actually aren't that accurate. Or, I mean, I'm sure they're very accurate still, but, but to the degree of accuracy that they need to be at that exalted level, they are not. Okay? So now you have a whole new, now you have a whole new paradigm, which is, which is the Einsteinian level, which is now exceedingly accurate. This is exceedingly accurate, and it's going to help you solve problems on a more cosmic scale that, that Newton is not going to be able, his numbers are not going to be able to address. Okay. So why does that, why am I telling you all this? Why am I telling you all this? The reason is because we have the same dilemma or the same situation in terms of our, the human experience, the human condition. So to put it very, very simply, we have this world where we perceive certain things but we can't perceive the ultimate picture because we're seeing a very small slice of reality. As Reb Shlomo put it one time so brilliantly, he said, imagine you're looking through a keyhole and, and there you see someone's raising a knife over someone else and you go, there's a murder about to take place. But what's the reality behind in that room? It's, it's a medical surgery. And it's a doctor, and he's about to save the life of a, of a patient. So, so that, 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 that's what it is. That's, that's this world and the ultimate picture. We're seeing a very, very small piece of reality. Okay? So now to fit that, that idea in, in the language that we've been discussing it right now, we sort of have, if you will, a Newtonian perspective. Right? But the ultimate truth, if you will, sort of correlates with and I'm talking spiritually right now, but I'm just kind of giving another language to sort of plug in, right? The ultimate truth, which we, if those of us who have been privileged to study the more mystical texts and, uh, you know, have an idea of the sort of like the, the Kabbalistic perspective, the Hasidic perspective, and we understand sort of like how the worlds are shaped and, and just the spherot and, and, and things like that, we have a much more expansive knowledge of what's sort of going on in the, in, in the heavenly realms, right? So, so that would be sort of more of an Einsteinian perspective, right? So, so how do we live our lives? How do we live our lives? So interestingly, someone asked this physicist, like, like knowing what you know, like have you tried to live your life in this world from an Einsteinian point of view, right? And he said, he says, I've attempted it a couple of times, but it's really, really difficult. Like, as I'm walking down Broadway, like, I'll think that that guy sitting down on the bench over there, his watch is different from my watch, right? Because that's the, those are the laws of relativity. Now, it would be, you know, just like very, very small differentiation, but it would be a differentiation. If you want to think in an Einsteinian perspective, 
even in this world, right? And, and I asked him, I said, look, there, there's something he was sharing in an idea with us, which is called um, quantum entanglement. So quantum entanglement says that without, I mean, I only know a little bit about it, but, but, just, but just, if you have, say, an electron, the example you gave, an electron in Los Angeles, it can be quantumly entangled with a, an electron, say, in New York, where if you affect the electron in Los Angeles, it'll have an immediate effect on the electron in New York. And without them being connected at all. And, and the language that Einstein actually used to describe that was spooky. How could it be if there's no, no connection whatsoever between the two of them that touching this one is going to affect that one? So a couple of people asked, well, maybe... There is a connection between the two of them, and we just don't know that there's a connection. Is that possible? And he said, yes. Yes, it's very theoretical, but some people are working into the, looking into the idea that there's actually a wormhole connecting these two electrons. So that would be sort of this space-time tunnel connecting these two electrons, but we just haven't been able to detect them. So then I asked him, is it possible, then, if, if I imagined, because there's all sorts of electrons entangled all around us, right? Which means that there could be all sorts of wormholes connecting them. I said, when I walk to the bathroom, am I walking through wormholes? Right? And he said, well, you know, if you accept all those premises, yes. And then he built on that. And then it was sort of like... <laughs> like... Like... And then someone else asked, well, so you could be entangled in wormholes as you're like, how do you, how do you function knowing the things that you know? And, and he was like, well, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was, he, basically he was like, I don't really think about it. So, so. I read in a Torah book that basically, you see, okay, so it says that the next world and this world, and it's a great piece of imagery. I wish I had a series of cups in front of me. You can try it at home. It's a, it's a really cool thing. The next dimension and this dimension are like stacking cups. Like, you know when you stack cups? Like you're clearing the table, you're stacking the cups. So you know how one cup goes into another cup? So the sages in the Gomorrah explain that that's, say, the dimension of souls, where, say, one soul goes, and this dimension. In other words, imagine you're the bottom cup. And then that next dimension, where the souls are, are that's a cup that's stacked into your cup, which would mean that they're all around us. All these souls are all around us. But we, we, can't, we can't see. And I saw in this, this Torah book that the reason why you can't see that, why God made it so that you wouldn't be able to be sensitized to the Einsteinian forces, right? The wormhole-type forces, if you want to put it in the language of physics. But, but in, the, in the Torah paradigm, we would say the, the various spiritual entities around you, the souls around you, the malachim, the angels around you, right? 
The reason why we can't see it is because if you were allowed to perceive these things, it would short-circuit your brain. It would, it would, you, it, it, you wouldn't be able to function in, in this realm properly. Now, with this in mind, remember what Rabbi Ari Kaplan says, that one of the jobs of the central nervous system is actually to block out stimuli, to block it out. Now, that's not an obvious first thought. But he was saying that, imagine if any of you have ridden the subway in New York or walked down Fifth Avenue on a crowded day. You know, can you imagine, he says, if you had a clear memory of every single face that you saw? Every single face that you saw? How about every single face that you saw over the course of your entire life? Right? It's, it's information overload. You would not be able to function. So part of the job of the central nervous system is actually to block out stimuli. Very interesting. And, and you see that in terms of this, this sort of like Newtonian versus Einsteinian way of going through life, or this world and the next world, right? Okay. So now, with all of that in mind, that was a long introduction for Porter. Okay. <laughs> So, so Purim, here's what kind of hit me on Shabbos, and I got excited about it. I really want to think about this some more. Okay, so I'm going to tell you something. You all know this. I heard in the name of the Ari. You're, you're all familiar with this, but, but we have to start with this. So if you look at the name of Yom Kippur in the, in the Gomorrah, Yom Kippur is actually known as the name, not Yom Kippur, but Yom Kippurim. Okay, that's what it's called, Yom Kippurim. So, K is a prefix in Hebrew, which means like. K means like. So let's be very literal about it. Yom Kippurim, the name of the holiday, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippurim, Yom means day. K means like. Purim. So Yom Kippurim, the name of the holiday itself, is a day like Purim. So, so now, just to take it to the next step, there's actually, a, there's actually an inference in there. Yom Kippur is only a day like Purim, which means as holy as you think Yom Kippur is, Purim is even higher than Yom Kippur. Okay, so this is already like... like now, now, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure everybody knows about Yom Kippur, for those of you who don't know what Purim is all about, Purim is a very earthbound holiday, <laughs> meaning to say it's the only holiday in the Jewish in Jewish law where actually there's a mitzvah to get drunk. Right? This is like, what are you talking about? And it's not because of gluttony or excess and, and actually you're supposed to have a suda, right? And, and by the way, halakhically speaking, how do you get drunk? You can fulfill it by taking a nap, right? You, Rabbi Nachman says you can fulfill it just by having tremendous love for your fellow human being, right? That, that, that that's the, the, in other words, liquor is not, it doesn't have to, and, and if it is any liquor, it should be wine, because that's the miracle of Purim was done over, during a, a wine feast, okay? It's not, not an invitation to drink bourbon or whatever it is, and it's not an invitation to behave in an unacceptable way. All it's talking about, and that's why you can do it by, 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 by just having love in your heart or by taking a nap. All you're trying to do is to transcend, to transcend your 
your earthbound consciousness. Just trying to get to a place of what they call in Torah, Adaluyada, which means beyond knowing, quote unquote knowing. Right? There's something very liberating to get to this place where you don't know and it's totally cool that you don't know. Right? So, so that's kind of the bliss of Purim. Okay, now, but let's get back to this whole Yom Kippur conundrum. So if that's Purim and I'm drinking and I'm giving out gifts to the poor and I'm running around and it's just parties and it's happiness and, you know, it's not a mitzvah, but some people have the, the custom to dress up in a costume. So how can you tell me if I'm dressed up like, you know, whatever, I'm dressed in a costume, I'm drinking, I'm eating, that this is holier than Yom Kippur? Like... How do I take that thought seriously, much less appreciate the truth of it? Okay. So now, think of it in this way. Yom Kippur is like on an Einsteinian level. Purim is like on a Newtonian level. Okay? And they're parallel tracks of the exact same idea. Now listen to this. On Yom Kippur, remember, Yom Kippurim. Yom Kippur is only a day like Purim, which means it's a little bit less. But it's already on the Einsteinian level. Why? Because the Einsteinian level, if you will, is that's the ultimate reality. That's what we're saying is like the cosmic reality, right? So what do I do on Yom Kippur? I behave and I dress and I act in such a way where I am like an angel. Okay? I'm like an angel. This is like, again, like the Einsteinian level, like you're above, you're beyond this world, right? There's a custom to dress in white. For large parts of this service, there's a custom not to sit. Do you know why? Because angels don't have knees. Okay? <laughs> so, so you, you're, and you're not eating or drinking or doing any other types of human activities, right? So this is, you're, you're making yourself like an angel, right? But can I tell you something? Do you know what the problem is? There's no problem with it. It's super holy. But do you know what the problem is? We're not angels. <laughs> you can make yourself like an angel, which is super cool, and it's one day out of the year, but we're not angels. But now can you imagine that there's a level of Yom Kippur where you can actually do it in sync with who you and what you really are, which is a human being, where you can actually be in this world where you can eat and you can drink and you can do all these sorts of things, but all you're doing during the entire process is elevating and sanctifying this world through your own physicality? You're not pretending to be something that you're ultimately not yet anyway? But you're embracing who you are and full on in terms of the embracing who you are? Yes, I eat. Yes, I drink. Yes, I do this, that, and the other thing, right? But through every single one of those activities, you can sanctify everything around you? That's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now listen to this. There are those authorities who hold 
There is no Jewish holiday without eating, by the way. Right? So, and this is, this is deep, by the way. This gets into the whole fixing of eating from the tree of knowledge. It's deep. It's not, it's not just like we like to eat, which we also like to do. But it's, there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot more to it than that, really, on a deep level. But you want it, so here's the question. If Yom Kippur is such a big holiday, where's the meal? Where's the meal? No, this is a serious, this is a serious story question. Where is the Suda of Yom Kippur? And there are those authorities who say, you know when you have the, the meal of Yom Kippur? You have it on Purim. That that is actually the Suda, which means feast, meal, and it's one of the mitzvahs. That's, that's the Suda of Purim, is that meal from Yom Kippur. So again, I'm, I'm asking you to look at two parallel tracks. One level and then another level underneath that. The top level, that's Yom Kippur. That's the angelic level. That's the beyond this world, this level. That's the Einsteinian level, if you will. Then I'm looking at the track underneath. That's Purim. And that's this world. Right? And you're having your meal in there, and then that's who you really are. The, the, the Purim version of yourself. But now you realize, wow. Okay, so now... Let me give you another parallel. There are many parallels, but I'm just going to give you this one more parallel. One of the big numbers, probably the number, if you have to pick a number, what's the number of Yom Kippur? It would be five. Okay? There's five Shmona Esrays on Yom Kippur. It's the only day in the entire year that has five Shmona Esrays. I, I believe the, the Kain Gadol changed his clothes five times, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and Purim, you have five Five mitzvahs. You have the, 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 the nighttime Megillah reading, the morning Megillah reading, the Suda, right, the meal. Then you also have gifts for the poor. You have to give charity. By the way, you have to give charity to anyone who asks. One of, one of the rare days of the year where you, can, you, you, where you don't make a judgment call. You're like, someone, someone's putting out their hand, you've got to give them something, okay? And then also, you have to give, like, food gifts to friends, right? That's the, um, that's the Shalach Munas, right? So five and five, interesting, interesting. Um, and then, here's the, here's, the, here's the last point, which is, let's revisit this drinking idea, right? And again, it doesn't have to be through drinking. But while you're in the body, while you're in that Newtonian place, if you will, you get to the place beyond this world. Where all of a sudden, you're not, you're basically in both realms simultaneously. And this is really, we're getting into kind of the glory of, of, of Torah at this point, you know? And this isn't just on Purim, this is all year long, is that we have an avoda, we have a, we have a pathway where you can simultaneously be in this world and the next world. Where you can have, as Rib Shlomo would put it, your feet on the ground and your head in the clouds. Right? Where we study like the most cosmic mysteries while simultaneously making sure there's no, you know, bugs in our lettuce. Right? From the highest, the highest, 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 most esoteric things to like a real detailed appreciation of this world. 
So this Purim, understand that you're getting an in-body Yom Kippur. You're getting another Yom Kippur. And to use all of the different amazing opportunities over the course of the day. I mean, we've got a fabulous community here where there's tons of stuff going on. You can stay busy every single moment of the day. To, to use it all to sanctify, to elevate, and to purify. Amen.